and welcome to Telling Stories. My name is James Trupany. This week's story is moving on from the history of the British Bulldogs and onto the solo career of Davy Boy Smith. Whilst the Bulldogs set the stage for what junior heavyweight wrestling and for what tag team wrestling could be in the 1980s, Davy Boy in the 1990s was a different animal entirely. He would go on to be the biggest mega draw the British wrestling scene ever produced and his talent for producing great wrestling matches despite difficult circumstances was incredible. He would challenge uh, for the Intercontinental Championship and he would end up being a big draw and really give a grounding to what the European Championship could be in the 1990s. So this story is a different story from the tag team stories we've talked about recently. This one is about Davy Boy, the British Bulldog. Whilst Dynamite moved on to his tag team with Johnny Smith, Davy Boy moved on to being a solo act and to an extent out Dynamite's shadow. He returned to the WWE in 1990. His first opponent out of the gate was another man trying to form his own identity with a career-defining rung in tag team wrestling. The Warlord. Managed by Slick, The Warlord was pretty one-dimensional. The gimmick to the series wasn't great either. The battle of finish manoeuvres, The Warlord's full Nelson against Davy Boy's running power slam, which is basically a rerun of the Hercules Hernandez Billy Jack Haynes series of three years before. Davy, having upped his body master that of a true heavyweight, was a believable powerhouse in comparison to the Warlord, but the story became about Davy's mix of science with power. They wrestled each other for what seemed like eons. Running into WrestleMania 7, their match would be lost in the sea of emotions involved Hogan vs. Slaughter main event and the Savage vs. Warrior retirement match. Someone was taking notice though. At least Davy could handle bigger, less able opponents and make them look like something. His next pay-per-view appearance would be against Bruiser Broder devotee The Berserker in the UK-only pay-per-view. UK Rampage at London Arena. At SummerSlam he tagged with Ricky Steamboat and Kerry Von Erich against Slick Stable of the Warlord and the Little Miss team of Power and Glory, Paul Romer and Hercules Hernandez in the opener. In the run-up to the event, as predicted by Bret Hart, he began a series for the Intercontinental title held by Mr Perfect Kurt Hennig. This would be his first shot at singles gold in the WWE, and though it ran on the house show circuit, Davey was out of the title picture by SummerSlam and back to turning back monsters. Brett had offered the first challenger role, but figured out it was the second challenger who was more likely to take the gold, and so declined. Davy got the job of enhancer, but Kurt needed no enhancement, and Brett got the gold. It was a minor setback, but a setback nonetheless. In October, he was back in the UK, which showed what a key market had become for the WWE, and in front of 5,000 fans lifted the famed Silver Samovar trophy that Gorilla Monsoon would wax lyrical about for the next four years at the Royal Albert Hall the key venue of any British wrestling promotion and any British wrestler's legacy. While it was a high point of his return to the WWF, it's worth noting that he had to slog 10 minutes out of the Barbarian in the semi-main, four pay-per-views and a four monsters, mid-card monsters at that. It also showed what a land of giants the WWF had become. At Survivor Series, he was again in the opener, being the first eliminated for his team, led by Roddy Piper with Bret Hart and Virgil, losing out to a Ric Flair top rope axe handle of all things. A few days later, he was back against the Warlord on Tuesday in Texas. As a fan at the time, and a fan of David Boy, it was great to see him on TV, and to see him getting multiple long-term series, but frustrating because I was thinking, when are we actually going to see him wrestle? Going into the Royal Rumble, Davey seemed to be going nowhere, and nowhere quick. He was running out of monsters to slay. He wasn't even on the WrestleMania 8 card. He was a huge draw in Europe, though. Winning a Battle Royal in Germany, and main eventing the UK Rampage Tour pay-per-view in Sheffield in spring of 92. Realising that Europe was a growth market with strong TV deals in place across the continent, especially in the UK with Sky, SummerSlam was moved from Washington DC to Wembley Stadium. The original plan of Shawn Michaels vs Bret Hart Intercontinental title match was shelved in favour of Davy Boy taking on Bret. The build-up to the match focused heavily on the family ties between the two. They were, after all, brothers-in-law. 
When Vince McMahon talked to Brett about the placement of the match on the card, he responded, you have to put it on last. No one else will be able to follow us. His confidence in he and Davey's abilities were pretty limitless when you consider that the WWF title match would feature the hugely over in the UK Ultimate Warrior and the equally popular Randy Savage. Vince acquiesced to Brett's request and the pair put on an absolute Matt classic. It was everything their matches had been in Japan and Stampede, with the added depth of experience. Finally, Davey had a dance partner he could flow with, and the match quality he could show was worthy of a main event anywhere. Talking about the match at a much later date, Brett said, The fans genuinely didn't know what was going to happen, and that's what made it great. Pinning Brett with the old British standard of the double-leg Nelson, Davey ascended to true main event status, something that had eluded him in previous years, and it also elevated Brett despite the loss. The come-down was swift, however. Davey entered a series with Shawn Michaels over the Intercontinental title and would lose the belt in November on Saturday night's main event. Not long after, he would be gone from the WWE with a wellness policy violation. He would move on to the next phase of his career in WCW. Unfortunately for him, he moved into WCW as common sense moved out. He began at the top though, challenging Vader unsuccessfully for the WCW World Heavyweight title, following a partnership with Sting, who would part perhaps the worst two segments in pro wrestling history. Whilst building to a tag match pitting himself with Sting against Sid and Vader, a vignette was shot, and I'm not making any of this up. Davy and Sting were seen on a boat together discussing strategy. Vader, Sid, and manager Robert Fuller were shown conferring with a midget. Sid and Vader, in full wrestling gear by the way, because that's how monster heels roll at the beach, except if you Sid you wear flip-flops, and if you're Vader you wear lime and converse. The midget flicked a button on an electronic device and blew up the boat containing Sting and Davy. Yes, folks, this really happened. WCW thought the best way of promoting a match was blowing up two of its participants before it had started. At least FMW waited till the end of the match. That was followed up a few weeks later by the Shockmaster incident. After realising that blowing people up off-camera was not the way forward, Dusty Rhodes had a vision. He saw the newly debuting Fred Otterman in a sparkle-finished Stormtrooper mask and a cape breaking through a wall. When you write that down, it seems silly, doesn't it? It really was, and it got even more stupid. After giving a heartfelt, well, as heartfelt as he could given he knew what was going to happen promo on the flair for the gold segment, Sting promoting the upcoming six-man tag between Sid and Harlem Heat against David Boy himself and a mystery partner announced their third man. It's none other than the Shockmaster! A loud explosion and a trip over a 2 by 4 that wasn't there in rehearsal, and Uncle Fred, as Cody calls him, crashed into the scene, knocking off his helmet and struggling to gain his composure, with David clearly enunciating his line, Well, he fell on his fucking ass." His broad Lancashire brogue. Good job it wasn't live. Oh, actually it was. On national cable overlay. Bummer. With thinking like that, you can imagine the David Boyd Smith WCW marriage didn't go well. It didn't. But it did have one shining moment. He challenged the then Lord Stephen Regal for the WCW TV title at Halloween Havoc 93. As my father put it at the match, it was straight out of Scunthorpe Baths, though it did seem to go over the head of the fans in attendance. The match was a joy to watch and brought everything out of both Lancastrians who having had the same background and training help, they meshed with each other beautifully. Shame no one else liked it. Not long after this, Davey found himself in trouble with the law after an altercation with someone in a bar. He was given his release and negotiated a deal with Max Crabtree to come back and fill Big Daddy's recently retired shoes. From having matches that looked like they could have been held in Scunthorpe Baths to actually having matches in Scunthorpe Baths was quite a come down. Playing Daddy's hero role to a T, this wasn't exactly hard work for him. He filled the houses and gave joint promotions one last run. I saw one of the matches myself, actually at Scunthorpe Baths, sitting three feet away from Diana Hart. He won't be off the world scene for long though. He returned to the WWE with the most productive portion of his career, initially coming back as the balance on the Bret Hart side of the Hart Brothers feud to nullify the effects of Jim Neidhart, who had Owens back. 
began making his own name again in the winter of 94. He had a standout Royal Rumble performance in 95, starting the match at number 2 and ending the match with number 1 draw Shawn Michaels. It seemed things were going places at last for Davey. A stable environment and a stellar opponent, his career was back on track. He began a tag team with Lex Luger, who was fast becoming a WWF lost soul, who really hadn't adapted to the times well, if he ever adapted to the WWF style of promotion at all. It would be the beginning of a slow heel turn for Davey, firstly on the house shows and then on TV as he partnered Diesel in a tag team title match on Monday Night Raw. Lex Luger, having in the storyline, no-showed the event. In the match, he would fully turn heel and join Camp Cornette to challenge Diesel for the WWF Heavyweight Championship. He took his first pay-per-view shot at the WWF title on the new In Your House series events in his old stomping ground of Winnipeg against Diesel in October of 95. He would challenge again, this time new champion Bret Hart in December of the same year. He'd finally become a full-time main event star. His perception in the industry was that he was a money-making draw worldwide and his actions in the ring made him a believable and very able heel. Though never a great promo, he didn't have to worry about that while Cornette was around and he would stay in and around the main event scene for the rest of his run. He had two more title matches with new champion Shawn Michaels in 96, firstly In Your House 8, which ended in a double pin, and The King of the Ring, which ended in a straight loss. He'd become the guy to go to to get people over with strong performances showing in his depth. In reality, his actions and mannerisms were well known to fans of 80s Japanese wrestling, where he played the Gaijin hero role perfectly well, watching and learning from Brett, Dynamite and Bad News. Watching and learning from Brett, Dynamite and Bad News Brown. He returned to the tag team competition with Owen Hart, which also turned into a subtle rivalry, which also turned into a subtle rivalry. As Davey became European champion, winning the title in a tournament on another European tour in Berlin, facing Owen in the final. It looked like the face turn was on the cards for Davey as the pair tagged together as champions on and off and then wrestled each other over the European belt and was a career highlight. Give Davey someone who could carry the promo weight, Owen was an underrated as a promo guy, and whom he could wrestle and magic would happen. The two were producing the goods in the ring and on the mic and it proved to be a highlight of WWE programming. In fact, the face turn never came to fruition. Brett turned heel and reformed the wider Hart Foundation to include Loose Cannon, Brian Pillman, Jim Neidhart, as well as Owen and Davey. This created a new concept to the WWF. Wrestlers who were faces in one market were heels elsewhere. Though arguably the case for years, it was the first time it was acknowledged on screen. Davey had been treading the fine line of balancing act ever since he turned. Whatever he did in the UK and generally in Europe, he would be cheered. He could now embrace the paradigm. The highlight of the Hamp Foundation run was a five-man tag match pitting the Hearts against Team Austin, Steve Austin, Ken Shamrock and the Legion of Doom at In Your House 16 Canadian Stampede. It put 12,000 rabid Canadian fans into the Saddle Dome and built the feud between Steve Austin and Bret Hart to new levels. There was, however, trouble on the horizon. Shawn Michaels was playing a game of politics in the WWF that rubbed many people the wrong way. When he petitioned Vince McMahon that it should be he who dethroned Davey as European champion, an unusual move considering the WWF title winners rarely took a back step to secondary titles at the time, believing that it would build heat towards the match with Brett at Survivor Series and a rematch with Davey on the next European tour, Vince was sold, and reluctantly so was Davey Boy. It would foreshadow the Survivor Series of that year, and as it passes into wrestling folklore, it should be noted that not only brought in the departure of Brett from the WWF, but also Neidhart and Smith as well. Returning to WCW, his rubs seemed to diminish somewhat. He began tagging with Jim Neidhart, who was not in top form. Neidhart's match with Chris Jericho for the TV title on Nitro that year was horrific. Though it reprised some of the Hart family legacy, its production was an afterthought. With so many guys on the books of WCW, both Neidhart and Smith were just there to stop them being anywhere else. 
When being backdropped by Alex Wright, son of fellow Lancastrian Steve Wright, Davey landed on top of a trapdoor for the Warrior to use as part of his longest unnecessary promo of all time. The result was a spinal staph infection that would require surgery and over a year off to recuperate. He returned to the WWE in 1999, walking straight into a a hardcore title match with the big boss man. He made an instant impact on Raw, winning the title and handing it straight over to former champion Al Snow. He'd have one last run in the main event as part of the six-pack challenge of Unforgiven alongside Triple H, The Rock, Mankind, Kane and Big Show. Triple H would take the vacant title that night and Dave returned to the mid-card for the rest of his run, challenging in and around the European title picture against D'Lo Brown, whom he won the title from, and latterly Eddie Guerrero, for his last ever televised title match. Davey was a true total package of his era. His muscular frame meant main event money. His wrestling ability meant that he was in demand to make people look great, but he paid a price for both. He never maintained main event status long enough to be considered a run with the world heavyweight title, and to be fair, probably didn't have the promo skills required. It also meant long-term health problems that culminated in his death May 18th, 2002, at the age of 39. I said at the beginning of this series, I wanted to celebrate the legacy of the Bulldogs and not judge, and I still do. When I first read Dynamite's biography, Pure Dynamite, it wasn't hard to feel sorry for Tommy. Being in a wheelchair at a relatively young age made me feel this was the one who got caught out when so many of his contemporaries were still going strong. Kurt Hennig, Davey, Randy Savage, The Ultimate Warrior, Rick Rude, Steve Williams, Terry Gordy. Turns out he was the lucky one. It just took me 20 years to see it and to put it into perspective. Despite the sad ending to this tale, there were two men who changed the way we think about pro wrestling. Dynamite's onward consistency in match quality has been echoed in many of today's workers, Daniel Bryan being the most obvious. His attitude that size didn't matter, what was important was putting on the best match possible, and his commitment to wrestling was the genesis behind so much of what we see today. Certainly Ring of Honor, the New Japan Junior Heavyweight Division, the Old Japan Junior Heavyweight Division, TNA's X Division, would not exist without his influence. Neither would CM Punk or Daniel Bryan's main event phases in the WWE. He left an indelible mark on joint promotions, Stampede, Pacific Northwest Wrestling, New Japan, Old Japan, and the WWF. Davey was a unique character that had mass appeal to a certain market, and that idea was toyed with and deployed by WWE ruthlessly in the late 90s. It affects the way the WWE markets to this day, making sure that there is a future for many British wrestlers in the WWE. The current crop of Eurostars, Page, Adrian Neville, Bad News Barrett, Sheamus, are always going to be used at the right moments. Davey was the test pilot. The most impressive legacy, though, may well be their work as a tag team. While the contemporaries were often duplicated, the Rock and Roll Express, the Midnight Express and the Road Warriors all had teams that would echo their success, the Rockers, the Heavenly Bodies and Demolition to name but a few, the Bulldogs never had a team that came close to them and looked in execution. Only the recently with the advent of the American Wolves, Davy Richard and Eddie Edwards dared to compare their in-ring style as closely to the Bulldogs. Apart, they were brilliant, but together they shone even brighter. My personal favourite Bulldog memory match would be seeing them wrestle the Malenko brothers in all Japan in the early 90s. They went a little shoot style to work Malenko's, who turned in a little pro wrestling style. Bring them both out of their comfort zones and produced, it brought them both out of their comfort zones and it produced a match of breathtaking quality that needs to be watched to be believed. It's as good as it gets. And for British wrestling, they set a high water mark that only a few have gotten close to. Thank you for listening to Telling Stories today. My name is James Trupany. You can find me at Sheriff Lone Star on Twitter. And you can find the Trupany Show channel at Trupany Show on Twitter. You can find us on Facebook, The Trupany Show, and on Patreon, The Trupany Show, where you can keep us free forever for everyone. Please go see our sponsors, Indie Empire Magazine and Powerslam.tv. Are you looking for the newest and hottest in the world of pro wrestling? 
Then check out the amazing action on powerslam.tv, the biggest indie pro wrestling channel in the world. Get over 6,000 hours of the best events from over 150 of your favorite promotions from 20 different countries around the globe. Brands like Progress Wrestling, Evolve Wrestling, Combat Zone, Defy, PCW Ultra, PWX, Over the Top, Shine, and hundreds of others with fresh content added every day for only $5.99 per month. Get your free trial today at powerslam.tv. The music by Sheriff Lone Star and Deputies Heartblade. You can find them at bandcamp forward slash Sheriff Lone Star.